Let's just pray before we, before we start. Father, help us to hear your word and to um, have hearts that are open to your word in its purest form. Help us not to be confusing other people's words or our own desires with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So this week's reading uh, is following directly on from last week's reading. Um, Remember last week Graham looked at the healing of the man born lame at the beautiful gate of the Jerusalem temple and and how that amazing miracle provided a platform for Peter to uh, preach the gospel to his fellow Jews. Louis' testimony that we heard before revealed how God is still showing that sort of power today here on the Gold Coast. So this week we're looking at how the leaders of the Jews reacted to that healing at the beautiful gate and how Peter, John and the rest of the church responded to this reaction. We're looking at bullies and boldness. So let's read that passage. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priests, the captain of the temple guard and some of the Sadducees. These leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus there is a resurrection of the dead. They arrested them and since it was already evening put them in jail until morning. But many of the people who heard their message believed in it. So the number of men who believed now totaled about 5,000. The next day, the council of all the rulers and elders and teachers of religious law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, along with Caiaphas, John and Alexander and other relatives of the high priest. They brought in the two disciples and demanded, by what power or in whose name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of our people, are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, the man you crucified but whom God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says, the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John For they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing right there among them, there was nothing the council could say. So they ordered Peter and John out of the council chamber and conferred among themselves. What should we do with these men? They asked each other. 
We can't deny that they've performed a miraculous sign and everyone in Jerusalem knows about it. But to keep them from spreading their propaganda any further, we must warn them not to speak to anyone in Jesus' name again. So they called the apostles back in and commanded them never again to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling about everything we have seen and heard. The council then threatened them further, but they finally let them go because they didn't know how to punish them without starting a riot, for everyone was praising God for this miraculous sign, the healing of a man who had been lame for more than 40 years. As soon as they were freed, Peter and John returned to the other believers and told them what the leading priests and elders had said. When they heard the report, all the believers lifted their voices together in prayer to God. O sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, you spoke long ago by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor David, your servant, saying, Why were the nations so angry? Why did they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepared for battle. The rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. In fact, this has happened here in this very city. For Herod Antipas, Pontius Pilate, the governor, the Gentiles and and the people of Israel were all united against Jesus, your holy servant, whom you anointed. But Everything they did was determined beforehand and according to your will. And now, O Lord, hear their threats and give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After this prayer, the meeting place shook and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Then they preached the word of God with boldness. Do we see Christians bullied for expressing their beliefs today? Of course we do. I'm sure just this week you heard about how the Manly NRL club, known as the Sea Eagles, in case you're confused, it's not Manly in Brisbane, spent months preparing a pride jersey for their team to wear, signifying, of course, their support for the LGBTQIA movement, but they forgot to tell their players about it. When their players found out by a social media on Monday this week, seven of them explained to the club that they couldn't wear such a jersey because it would misrepresent their beliefs. The club explained to them that they could either wear the jersey or not play their choice. They chose not to wear the jersey and Manly was left seven players down for a key match, which they could have won with those seven players, from what I heard, but which they lost. Raising the question of whether Manly's main focus is on football 
or social justice. The club coach and captain apologised to everyone, including the seven players, but they couldn't solve the problem. There were two things that made this debacle an example of bullying. The first was the way that manly leaders sprung their jersey on their players. There's speculation that they were hoping to force them into agreement by not giving them a choice. But the second and more important form of bullying actually has come from outside Manly, from journalists and other NRL figures. For example, Nine Wide World of Sports reporter Matt Bungard, who I'd never heard of before, wrote on Twitter, I don't want to hear one single thing about respecting other people's opinions or using religion as a crutch to hide behind while being homophobic. No issues playing at a stadium covered in alcohol and gambling sponsors, which is also a sin. What a joke. So it seems that Matt gets to define not only the motives of these seven players, but he also gets to define their morality, which of course is classic bullying. Peter Fitzsimmons, not well known for his measured rationality, suggested that the club should sack anyone who refused to wear the jersey. Perhaps the most interesting thing about this bullying, and and this is merely two of many, many examples, is that the seven players were not refusing to wear the jersey because they were Muslim or Buddhist, but because they were Christians. They were Polynesian Christians. Just a few months ago, a Muslim sat out a game because she refused to wear a pride jersey. Hanin Zrika plays for the AFLW Giants team and her protest was met with general support, both from her club and from the media. For example, Peter Fitzsimmons wrote about Zrika in his SMH column of January the 28th. Yep, here we have a young and relatively unknown footballer quietly telling her understanding club that while she totally supports gay teammates, she'd rather sit this one out because her own religious community is against it. So what could explain the different approaches taken by Fitzsimmons and other commentators to Zrika and the Manly Seven? Is it sexism? Is it religious discrimination? Is it racism? The tone of their attacks make it sound like it is very much the latter. It's religious sorry, the middle one, religious discrimination. Bullying of Christians who take a stand for their beliefs in a way that does no injury to anyone else is now an entrenched part of public Australian culture. And I should clarify that that, uh, causing offence cannot be equated with causing injury and that choosing to take offence is an emotional reaction, not an inflicted injury. There are numerous things that modern Australian society advocates that are morally offensive to Christians. If we chose to take offence every time someone did or said something we disagreed with, we would spend our lives in a state of high dudgeon. That's a cool word that means indignation. (laughs) So now you've learnt a new word. So how did this first recorded bullying of Christians in Acts 4 actually play out. The first thing to note is the people who were arrayed against Peter and John. The list of accusers is long and disturbing, daunting. 
basically every Jew who had any sort of power was lined up against Peter and John. Later, when the whole church was pondering this encounter, they reflected on the opposition that Jesus himself had faced. That's an even more daunting list, since it actually includes, well, everybody, Jews and Gentiles, rulers and people, basically everyone was against Jesus. The church, in its very beginning, faced opposition from those in power and those without power, from those who recognised God in some form, like the Jews, and those who didn't, like the Gentiles. And this hasn't changed. For us and our children, it's distressing to face opposition from the mass media, from our co-workers, from our fellow students, from our neighbours, from our friends, and even sometimes from our families. It's tempting to give up. But remember that a conflict has two sides. Yes, the side opposing us is mighty indeed, but what about our side? When Peter responded, he spoke by the power of the Holy Spirit. He didn't need his own weak words. And Jesus had promised him this months before. When you're arrested, don't worry about how to respond or what to say. God will give you the right words at the right time. For it is not you who will be speaking, it will be the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Do you think Peter and John had thought back to these words of Jesus while they were sitting in the jail overnight waiting for the council to see them? Their boldness suggests that maybe they had. They certainly had a perspective on the conflict that was deeply grounded in their understanding and knowledge of God. They never forgot who they owed their lives to. And when the church gathered in response, they too understood this. It's tempting to look at these verses and think, our side is mightier than yours, especially since that is true. But that attitude... So for Christians to have that attitude, right? Our side is mightier than than our opponents, which is true. But that attitude is profoundly unlike the attitude of Jesus, who meekly went to the cross to die, despite being the author of life. Notice that the response of the church is, is not to overthrow the evil leaders or even try to overthrow them like the rebels in Star Wars, for example. Rather, the church redoubles its good deeds and preaching of the gospel, pressing harder into the Great Commission of making disciples of all men. Disciples, remember, are students of a leader and you can't make students by force. So let's examine the nuances of this conflict a little to see how they might play out today. Note that the rulers of Judah seem to be afraid of the power of Jesus' name. Their question was, in whose name have you done this? They were hoping that they weren't dealing with evidence of Jesus' true status as Messiah. If it were the disciples who'd managed the healing 
then perhaps they could kill them. But if Jesus, who they'd already killed, was behind it, what hope did they have? From their perspective, from their distorted, sinful perspective, it's, it's, it must have seemed like an unstoppable zombie apocalypse. They killed this guy and he got back up again and he was miraculously healing people. The charge today is similar. This week, the new Senate president, Sue Lines, had insisted that she, as an atheist, should not have to follow the traditional Senate opening, opening formalities of reading the Lord's Prayer. She didn't seem particularly worried about the welcome to country that accompanies it, even though an atheist should have big problems with that as well. Many have disagreed with Sue Lyons, including her own party, but no one actually accused her of bigotry or of denying Christians their heritage. The self-confidence of the Christian faith, with its vast contribution to the arts and sciences, the powerful witness of church in society, the extraordinary amount of charitable work done by Christians and Christian institutions, both now and, and in history, is a frightening platform which strengthens claims made about Jesus. No other worldview or belief system has so much evidence to support its truthfulness or its power. Even Enlightenment thinking, in many ways, the natural worldview of Australia, is daunted by the power that Christianity demonstrates throughout history and the world. And Enlightenment thinking lays claim to science and, and a lot of the charitable institutions and human rights that actually came out of Christianity. But even with all of that claimed for themselves, they still find Christianity intimidating. This makes the name of Christ a threatening one to our culture today. And to be honest, it always will be. In Acts, we see a fledgling church merely weeks old and yet already viewed as a threat. We must understand that and expect pushback, even sometimes violent opposition. And to be clear, this is not merely a political or a social matter. As Paul says some years later in his letter to Ephesians, we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. So how then do we respond to this, um, to this pushback against our message? Our response, like Peter's, should be driven by the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised that he would give us the words to speak. And what sort of words are they? They're words that point to Jesus and to the fact that only Jesus can solve our problems. This exclusivity, only through Jesus may we be saved, is the cause of many of the problems that we encounter if there were many paths to salvation from our perspective, then we could be much more flexible. 
We could be inclusive as society so desperately wants us to be. Inclusive in their idea of inclusivity. And that's why we need to respond like the early church, praying, give us your servants great boldness in preaching your word. Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Our world, well, let's be honest, it's, it's a complete mess. Our children are crippled by anxiety and completely unable to love one another in healthy ways. Their parents are consumed by selfishness and bewildered by how that has made their lives more miserable instead of better. Pride is now considered a great virtue instead of a deadly sin. Our world needs healing. And we, as Christians, are called to pray that God will stretch out his hand with healing power. We pray for miraculous signs and wonders to be done in Jesus' name, through Jesus' name. But I must sound a warning. Given the great power that is on our side, we must be careful not to become proud. Pride is evil and it's prideful people who inevitably hurt others. The church has been guilty of this far too many times in recent centuries, even throughout history. Personally, I can't count the, how many people I have spoken to, how many people I, I've known over the years who want nothing to do with Christianity because of their treatment at the hands of proud Christians. When we see people as our enemies, instead of souls to be rescued, we will create enemies. When we think that the war is between us good people and those bad people, instead of between the forces of light and the supernatural forces of evil, then we will fall, we will fail in our rescue mission. When we think that that God is on our side instead of us being rescued by God, then we will dehumanise people that we think are on the bad side. This is the problem with the culture wars. We're not in a culture war. We're in a supernatural war. All human cultures, including our own, the church's culture, the various church cultures, are fallible. So we must align ourselves with God, not with some mythical Christian culture. I was watching a Peter Kreeft video um, yesterday and Peter Kreeft is a great thinker and a really, really um, interesting philosopher. But he's a Catholic and as a Catholic he has a view of the world that is very worldly in a way. Catholicism sees the church as, as, as an, a, an institution that should have power in the world. 
And so Kreeft's perspective is that there's a cultural war between the church and, the, um, and everyone else. But of course, as Protestants, we think that the Catholics have got so many things wrong that we're sort of like, well, which side are we on then? So that, that just demonstrates the flaw with choosing some, sub, some Christian subculture as your side and battling everyone else. So what's our strategy then? We've already seen how God can use the deeds we do in Jesus' name and power, whether they're physically miraculous or socially miraculous, like orphanages and hospitals. These things didn't just spring out of nothing. They took thousands of years, many centuries to develop these institutions. And we can see how quickly they fall to pieces when, uh, when our culture starts to move away from Christian values. We've seen how these deeds, the deeds of the church historically, our deeds, God's deeds in people's lives, like Louis' miraculous healing, how they provide a testimony to the reality of Jesus' power, which then provides an opening to preach the gospel. That's what Graham talked about last week. Now we can see a strategy for dealing with the pushback against this. Namely, all we need to do is to continue to trust God's power to keep obeying him in deed and word and to keep preaching the truth that only Jesus can save. We don't need to mount a counter-offensive. Sounds simple, right? But like chopping wood or cooking or lots of other things, it's only practice that makes perfect. So we need to get out there and practice. So let's pray. Dear Father, bend our hearts towards you. Let our ears be fixed on your word. Help us to love our neighbours as we love ourselves and to focus on your rescue mission when they attack us rather than trying to defend ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.